Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Before we get into today's episode, I did just want to give a warning that there will be talk about physical abuse to autistic people in the first 10 10 minutes of this episode. So if that triggers you in any way, then you may want to skip that portion of this episode. There are so many systems in our culture that can do a better job at supporting the needs of the autistic community. And one of those systems is the medical system. Serena Gregor joins us today to talk about this system and how the medical community can do a better job of, ta- of care for autistic people. And, and Serena also discusses research that can better serve the autistic community. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Serena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for all the great work you're doing in the autism community. I appreciate it so much. I always start uh, Autism Stories to learn where where does uh, your story in the uh, autistic community begin? This is a long one, so brace <laughs> yourselves. Yeah, so like with many women, my autism story begins far too late. I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my 20s. I was 27 to be exact. Um, However, looking back, um, it was quite obvious that I was autistic my whole life. How that affected me looked very different at different life stages. So as a child, I didn't really appear to be struggling, but there was a lot going on beneath the surface. I had frequent absence seizures, Although, like, in my mind, I kind of thought it was just, I was falling asleep for a split second a lot. I always had purple visual snow and then a delay in focusing my eyes that made it difficult to see. So I kind of attribute that to a lot of my social difficulties, that I simply can't see people's body language. (laughs) I also dealt with being lightheaded and fatigued quite a bit, even as a child. I was just always so tired all the time. And then I also had to urinate what seemed like constantly. And we now know that there are a lot of autism genes that are metabolic, so I think it had something to do with that. But it was kind of an unusual symptom. (laughs) I was a good student, though, so all of these problems kind of just remained invisible to my caregivers. So one thing I really think we need to do is more research in these areas to see what autistic children are experiencing and find a way to effectively ask autistic children about their experiences and what they might be going through. I did have um, some pretty obvious social difficulties when I was a child, though. My way of playing with Barbies was (laughs) dumping the dolls' outfits on the ground and sorting them into categories, like... (laughs) either by color or type of clothing, (laughs) whatever, like, whatever I felt like doing at that 
difficult things for me was on the playground when with pretend play. So, you know, like when kids are playing house, I was just so clueless as to, as far as what I was supposed to do and what was expected of me. Um, the way I coped with that was I would always play the role of the dad so I could just leave for work and then just disappear for the rest of the scenario. <laughs> as watching TV with a friend, it could just be so overwhelming. I mean, it made me dizzy to turn my head toward my friend during the funny part of a cartoon. And some days, like, even though I was amused by the cartoon, I just didn't even have the energy to laugh. I was just always so exhausted. There are some days I just couldn't even force it. And, like, when my friends came to ring the doorbell, I would go in my room and hide from them. I loved my friends, but they just demanded so much more from me socially than I could possibly give to them. And then middle school. (laughs) It was as awkward for me as it is for anyone else. (laughs) I did a lot of masking at that point, more so than probably any other time in my life. Um, I was trying really hard to fit in. Um, I was wearing all the same clothes as everyone else, participating in sports I was terrible at watching TV shows and movies that felt like absolute torture to me just so I could have something in common with my other classmates. And then I started kind of becoming ashamed of how people perceived my intelligence. They thought I was like too smart. They thought I was intimidating. So this was around the time like I started changing answers to tests. So I wasn't so intimidating to my classmates. Like, almost nothing I did during that time was for myself. It was just, what do I need to do to blend in? And what do I need to do to be accepted by others? And then at the same time, like, my physical symptoms are getting a lot worse. I started having some motor difficulties. I started having memory problems. I started having some chronic pain. And then (laughs) I even started failing my assignments in earnest. I was just having so much trouble. The most difficult part of my life, though, um, before receiving the autism diagnosis was adulthood. That was by far the most traumatic part of my life. So the combination of being autistic and having dealt with abuse and neglect throughout my childhood was especially damaging. Like, not only was I socially naive, I didn't see abuse as anything unusual. In addition, I was visibly disabled by my motor difficulties, which my family dismissed as psychosomatic and expected me to fend for myself anyway. But the combination of all those factors made me incredibly vulnerable. I can't even count the number of times strangers had followed me out out of a store and tried to force their way into my car. The authority figures that had been a source of safety during childhood were now just as likely to be predators boss from my first summer job said lewd things to me and started stalking me. One of my college professors offered me a ride home just so he could tell me that his wife had cancer and he really needed someone to have sex with. I ended up in a sexually coercive relationship with one of my TAs. I've been sexually assaulted multiple times by acquaintances, at a dorm party with college friends, 
And one time, even by a stranger in an academic library, while well, a librarian watched the whole thing, her response was to laugh. And my family reacted in a similarly heartless manner to these situations. One time, in response to not reciprocating my roommate's sexual interest in me, he started physically abusing me, attempted to set the kitchen on fire, and spiked my food with something I was allergic to, which resulted in an ER visit. Despite what he did to me in front of my grandparents, or despite admitting what he did to me in front of my grandparents, my grandparents did nothing to help me get out of the situation. Similarly, when I was searching for an affordable place to live, a friend of a friend offered to let me sleep on his couch in exchange for some rent money. Turns out he also expected sexual favors. Um, my health was quite bad at the time, so I didn't have anywhere else to go. I ended up in a women's shelter for several months. My immediate family knew about this, but they did nothing to help. My grandfather even took this as an opportunity to try to steal my debit card information. At that point, not a single corner of this earth felt safe to me, and not a single person that I knew was willing to protect me. I'm not telling this because I want pity, but I am telling this because I want people to know how pervasive this problem is in the autistic community. By the time we turn 18, one in three autistic girls and one in 10 autistic boys will have been sexually abused. For autistic people with an intellectual disability, the likelihood of experiencing sexual violence is 78%, regardless of gender. Of that 78%, half of them will have been victimized 10 times or more. This is not even including other forms of abuse, which autistic people also face at disproportionately high rates. With all that said, my autism diagnosis was literally a lifesaver. It explained to me for the first time that all these things weren't happening to me because I was putting off bad energy. Don't ever tell a person that. I truly believed for a long time that I deserved all the abuse I endured. Thankfully, I was able to learn otherwise, and I was able to learn how to keep myself safer in social settings. I've learned a lot, of, I've learned a lot already, but I will always continue to learn and to heal. So, we need to start having several age-appropriate conversations throughout childhood about bodily autonomy and consent, starting at a very young age. A similar conversation at my preschool actually prompted me to tell my mother that my babysitter was hitting me across the face, despite that babysitter telling me not to tell anyone. These conversations do work. We need to teach autistic people social skills that allow them to interact with others safely how to identify unsafe situations, and how to take action. We should not be teaching autistic people to comply with others' demands. This just groups us for abuse. And finally, the single most important thing a parent can do to keep their child safe is to be emotionally available to them. The presence or absence of a healthy emotional bond with the caregiver impacts every aspect of a person's life, often well into adulthood. Their sense of self-worth, who they deem safe and unsafe, their ability to form secure attachments to others, and even the amount of satisfaction they gain from their achievements. So please validate your child's emotions. 
guide them through identifying and processing their emotions. It truly is that important. Well, Serena, thank, thanks for sharing that. You were, you know, talking about caregivers and settings that may not, um, autistic people may not get the best support in or good support in as well. As well. Um, certainly one of those uh, places is when people are receiving, autistic people are receiving medical treatment. And, you know, that's something that, you know, you, you haven't gotten the best treatment in the past. So looking back on that, what ways could medical personnel have done a better job in making sure your needs were met to get better medical care? So I think there's still a lot of misconceptions about autism in the medical field that contribute to this bias in care. One major problem for many of us, myself included, has been the amount of pain that we're in is often grossly underestimated by providers. And first of all, autism does create difficulties in communication. So we don't really often communicate pain in a conventional way, if we communicate it at all. And then second of all, so many of us deal with chronic pain, like joint pain, migraines, GI problems, neuropathic pain, that we're just so used to a certain level of pain in our bodies at all times. Because of this, we often become desensitized to anything that's happening to our bodies. And then in addition to that, our pain is so often dismissed by others that we feel it's not even worth the emotional trauma to try to communicate it. So the point where my own pain was finally taken seriously was when I had a procedure done that everyone could agree on was very painful. I barely had any reaction whatsoever. <laughs> it was then that my providers started to realize that if I was reacting to that pain with like barely any reaction, that what I was describing when I was describing when I was even in even worse pain must have been especially bad. But before that, they didn't really take it seriously. They thought maybe I was overreacting. So I found that like pain scales using numbers and faces are just completely unreliable. Mm. Not only that, um, even changes in vital signs for autistic people might be unreliable because many of us have autonomic dysfunction. We don't often exhibit the expected vital sign changes in response to pain that non-autistic people do. I think it would be a lot better if healthcare providers asked autistic people to compare their current pain to some well-known painful experience, or at least one that they've had, such as breaking their arm or putting their hand on a hot stove. Just something that's kind of universally understood as painful or not too painful. And then I think it's really important for the healthcare provider to follow up with asking, how did you react to that pain when it happened? I think that gives the provider a better idea of how that, how that autistic person reacts to and communicates pain. And as a general rule, I think when it comes to pain, autistic people tend not to be very theatrical about it. So just because we're not acting like we're in pain or not exhibiting the usual signs, doesn't mean that we're not suffering. I think the second issue that many providers face is that they erroneously believe that all autistic people are intellectually disabled. Although there is a higher prevalence of intellectual disability among autistic people, most autistic people are not intellectually disabled. 
it may be important to have it explicitly noted in you in your or your child's medical chart whether or not the autistic person has an intellectual disability especially for those with motor speech difficulties it's just all too often that a motor speech difficulty leads someone to incorrectly assume that someone's intellectually disabled. So if you or someone you care for does struggle with communicating at doctor appointments, I found it really helpful to send a MyChart message to my doctor ahead of the appointment date, just outlining what I want to discuss. That way I don't really miss anything. And in case of an emergency, I think having some sort of written instruction for a provider in your wallet or saved on your phone can be really helpful especially with the visitor restrictions in place due to COVID. It's so much more likely now that an autistic person is going to end up separated from their support person than it was before the pandemic started. And in an emergency situation, it's so important for a provider to first always presume competence, especially with someone who's intellectually disabled. Second, when performing any procedure, address the autistic person not the support person, the autistic person directly, and explain what you are about to do before you go ahead and do it. This will save a lot of distress on both ends. And while you're at it, do that for every non-autistic person as well. Currently, you are a volunteer as a patient and family advisor at a local hospital in your community. What's your advice to patients and families in solving accessibility issues related to obtaining mental health assistance? So yeah, it's very difficult to obtain mental health care right now, especially with the pandemic. But even before then, there's just such a shortage of providers. And unfortunately, not everyone gets matched up with a provider that's good for them. So I think my advice is reach out to patient relations and reach out to them as many times as you need until you are receiving the care that's both compassionate and transformational. That's really what therapy is about. If you don't connect with the advocate that you first talked to, it's okay to ask to talk to somebody else. Somebody might be able to help you better than the first person. That's a completely acceptable thing to do. The job of the patient relations person is to help you find a provider who's best suited to meet your individual needs and can also act as a liaison between you and the healthcare provider to help maintain that positive relationship. Oftentimes, patient relations is aware of a certain provider that's really accommodating and they can help you connect with them. And that just takes up so much of the guesswork when you're trying to find a new provider. Also, they're a great point of contact for resolving any accessibility concerns you may have, whether it be with a provider, with scheduling, even with the building itself, they are a great point of contact to discuss those concerns and they will reach out to the correct people. Other than volunteering uh, right now, something interesting about you is that you are a first-generation college student. So I'm, I'm wondering um, what kind of impact um, being a first-generation college student has had on you and maybe uh, your family as well. So I think it's definitely made things a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it really depended on what school I was at, um, whether I was at a community college or a university, um, how it impacted me. I felt like when I was attending community college, nearly every professor is already experienced in supporting students who are often juggling multiple responsibilities. So 
they're used to helping students that are students and have full-time jobs or have families or active in the military. I didn't really have as much trouble having a disability at a community college because the professors were already well-equipped to handle that. There also seemed to be a lot more diversity in gender, race, and socioeconomic status among my college professors at community colleges versus at a university. My experience was that most of my university professors were overwhelmingly white, male, and from privileged backgrounds. And many of them are just completely incapable of empathizing with the multitude of things I have to juggle as a disabled female first-generation college student. Most have not been happy about having to make disability accommodations. And some would even go out of their way to make it miserable for me to have to interact with them. You know, there are laws saying they have to make accommodations, but there aren't laws saying they have to be nice about it. So, I mean, this actually ended up in me having to drop several classes I was otherwise doing well in because nobody was really willing to stand up for me. So this kind of wasted a lot of my time and my money and delayed my graduation. But thankfully, this academic year has been really good. I've had a very diverse pool of professors and TAs, and I've gotten a lot of support. So good way to end my undergraduate career. (laughs) Before we started recording, you mentioned uh, you have a couple weeks left in your uh, semester. So first, I thank you for coming and talking with me um, with just a couple uh, weeks left. Um, Probably a busy time. And uh, so you're studying uh, biochemistry at um, the University of Wisconsin-Madison and are currently working as biological technician in stem cell research. Why was it important for you to focus in this area of study? So I'm actually not currently doing stem cell research, and I don't know if I'll have the opportunity to work with stem cells again, but it was a really valuable experience for me. I actually gained a lot of confidence, not only with my bench work, but with scientific problem solving as well. So when I was working on optimizing the protocol, it would often include doing a literature search, trying to identify a problem, and trying to resolve that problem. And this was something that went pretty well for me most of the time. And I liked that I had like those quick, tangible results for my hypotheses just right in front of me. So that confidence has really come in handy as I write this very speculative scientific review article where I don't have like that immediate feedback of whether or not the stem cells are growing well or not. <laughs> so I'm just trying to carry a little, that, a little bit of that confidence over into the work I'm doing now. And then also just seeing a cell later with its own heartbeat, it, it never gets boring. <laughs> You're working on an autism review article right now that you mentioned with the goal to explore the possibility that the autism phenotype is not defined merely by differences in social behaviors, but rather that social behaviors are influenced by the multitude of physiological effects on the body due to low plasma sulfate. What exactly is plasma sulfate and what is its function in the body? Before I answer that, I'll just give you a little bit of background on that question. So the thing that makes social interaction most difficult for me personally is that 
I find it really hard to both observe and use nonverbal communication. This is due to me not having really good control over my body. As Naoki Higashida explained in The Reason I Jumped, it's as if we're remote controlling a faulty robot. Society often ignores the fact that social interaction requires extensive use of fine motor skills, so good fine motor skills are needed to produce speech, to control our voice volume and tone, to focus our eyes and shift our gaze, and to make facial expressions. Fine motor skills also influence the gestures we are able to make and contribute to our overall body language. I can't reliably perform any of these skills and can't really observe them in others in real time, so this often leads to a lot of misunderstanding when interacting with non-autistic people. So when I started learning about the experiences of other autistic people, hearing that they were quite similar to my own, it seemed that the autistic experience often includes far more than just differences in social interaction. So then uh, when I learned about sulfate levels in autism, it fit the idea that autism often affects the whole body, not just the brain. So sulfate is an ion that plays many important roles in the body. It is the building block of many chemical messengers, which direct our growth and development. It helps us build strong joints and bones, and it helps regulate many hormones and other chemicals within our bodies. Sulfate also helps us process what we bring into our bodies from the external environment, such as bacteria and viruses, the food we eat, and even the medications we take. What do we know at this point in terms of how low sulfate levels may affect autistic folks? We don't really know a lot at this point. All that we really know so far is that in the few studies that have looked at sulfate and autism, most autistic individuals, sometimes as many as 92%, have very low levels of sulfate in their blood. So looking at sulfate levels in autism is important for many reasons. The first and most important is that sulfate helps build several molecules that help regulate brain growth. Autism has been associated with differences in brain development, but so far we don't really know what's causing that. It's possible that low sulfate levels may influence those differences. Sulfate likely also has an important role in balancing the activity of neurotransmitters, the chemical signals that neurons use to, rel to relay signals. Autistic people think differently and experience the world differently than non-autistic people, and differences in neurotransmitter levels could probably explain why that is. Sulfate forms conjugates with many neurotransmitters in our blood, including dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, the same neurotransmitters that antidepressant medications work to enhance. However, there's currently very little information about what effect sulfate has on these neurotransmitters. What we do know is that when sulfate is attached to many other molecules in the body, it changes the way the molecule behaves, either activating it, deactivating it, changing what message it carries, or enhancing it for removal from the body. It is possible that sulfate conjugation is helping maintain just the right amount of neurotransmitter activity in our bodies. Sulfate may influence what we currently understand to be co-occurring co conditions as well. So these are conditions that are most commonly associated with autism. These conditions are much more common in autism, but are still considered separate from autism. That list includes gastrointestinal distress, connective tissue disorders, immune dysfunction, intellectual disability, arthritis, migraines, and seizures. 
So these conditions may actually share a biochemical origin with autism. The reason that every autistic person has co-occurring conditions is because there are many genes that influence sulfate levels, and there's a lot of variation in what those genes do. And oftentimes these genes have greater influence over another condition than they do on sulfate levels. So for example, one person may inherit genes that have a very direct effect on the nervous system, while others may inherit genes that are associated more with co-occurring conditions. Thinking maybe in terms of autistic research in the future, what do you, what do you hope for the future of this research? So my primary goal with this work is to make medical care safer and more effective and to increase the lifespan of autistic people. As we begin to study autistic people throughout their entire lifespan, there are a disproportionate number of premature deaths due to accidents and choking, which demonstrates just how serious motor difficulties can be. Also, side effects from medications used in treating co-occurring conditions are a common cause of early death in autistic people. I'm pretty interested in figuring out why this is happening so we can make necessary medical interventions safer for us. And then looking at the grand scheme of things, I'd like to see the experiences of all autistic people be recognized and validated. What that means is our professional support networks need to incorporate more autistic voices in developing ways to meet the physical, emotional, intellectual, and social needs of autistic people. That also means that we need to recognize that co-occurring conditions are often a part of autism for many. Not everyone experiences co-occurring conditions, but for those who do, these conditions are an inextricable part of the autistic experience. Autism advocacy needs to advocate for all autistic people, including autistic people experiencing motor difficulties, other neurological or psychiatric conditions, intellectual disability, and any physiological conditions. For some, autistic is a different way of thinking. For others, it's a different way of being. Both experiences are equally valid. Most of all, we need to make certain that we are elevating the voices of those in the autism community who are at greatest risk of being silenced. Well, Serena, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Serena for the conversation. If you're interested in how Autism Personal Coach can help support you in medical appointments beyond this podcast, you can find a link to book a free call in the podcast description of this episode. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will have a conversation about the Autistic Women's Alliance. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.